Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter number 3. I think it goes without saying that the thing that determines our destiny, the thing that determines whether we are a success or a failure, uh, is our decisions. All of us can think back to times in our life where we made a decision. We, you know, we came to, a, like Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> well, you know, you better be careful which fork you take, which direction you go, because uh, uh, both roads don't lead to the same place. Jonah had made a horrible decision when he ran from the Lord. It's not that he was just trying to get away from the people of Nineveh. He wanted evidently away from the Lord because it reminded him uh, of his miserable failure. And here we see that finally he has got his feet back on solid ground. Well, that it must have felt good to get out of the belly of the whale and back on ground. Uh, I cannot imagine what, uh, what that experience must have been like. So tonight we're going, to, we're going to think about his decision. Notice in verse number 1 and 2, we see his decision being stated here very clearly. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Notice that he is given a second chance. We don't always get a second chance, do we? There are a lot of times that, you know, we uh, have an opportunity and we fail to capitalize on it and we lose it forever. Uh, but then there are those instances where by the grace of God, for some reason known only to God, he gives us a, a second chance. That's the way it was with Moses. We think about Moses whenever he decided to take matters into his own hands and uh, consequently he killed an Egyptian and he spends the next 40 years uh, out of the will of God instead of being where God wanted him to be and doing what God wanted him to do, he made a poor decision. But God gave him a second chance, and he capitalized on it. I think of David and the horrible sin that he committed. And uh, you remember Nathan the prophet said to David, Thou art the man, and he pointed out his sin. And David confessed his sin and Nathan told him that God will forgive you your sin uh, and you will not die. Now, if anybody deserved to be put to death for their sin, it was certainly David. Here is a man that had committed adultery and turned around and, and basically had uh, uh, her husband put to death. And, and of all people that should have done better than that, it, you know, it was David after all. Uh, David is the leader of the people. David is a man after God's own heart. David is a man people looked up to, uh, depended upon for guidance. And David failed miserably. And the child died as a result of that. But the fact remained that God 
gave him his life, and God gave him a second chance. We also think about Peter and his miserable failure. And, you know, sometimes we try, I think, to minimize that. You know, we try to excuse it, that he was under great pressure, pressure, and consequently, you know, he denied the Lord, uh, and, uh, and so we let him off of the hook. But, you know, God doesn't let you off the hook so easy. But the great thing is God did give him a second chance. I think about John Mark. John Mark was a man that had a great opportunity, and yet he blew it. And yet later Paul could say that he is profitable for my ministry. And so here is someone that had been restored to a place of usefulness. And, uh, you know, it might be that some of you have rebelled against God, run from God, refused to do the will of God, and, you know, you, you might feel in your heart, God can never use me again. But the fact of the matter is you don't know that. You don't know that. And so you need to give God the opportunity by making things right. And if you get that second chance, what will you do with it? What will you do? Now notice here in verse number 2 that in giving Jonah the second chance that God gives him the same commission He says, Arise and go unto Nineveh. So the place of his assignment did not change. He wanted him to go to Nineveh. That was the the only place on earth where he could be in the center of God's will. You know, uh, Jonah could have said, You know, it's wonderful that I have a a second chance, and, and Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, but, you know, except go to Nineveh. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you anywhere you want me to be except in Nineveh. I don't know why it is, but over the years I've said so many times that in talking about the most important decisions that we make, and naturally uh, the decision to receive Christ as our Savior is on the top of the list, right? I think the second one is who you marry. I don't think there's anything more important than that other than receiving Christ as your Savior. But the third one, I think, has to do with the church, being in the church where the Lord wants you to be. And uh, I'm I'm just so convinced of that. Somebody was talking this morning, we were talking about uh, living in different places. I'll not get too specific. I don't want to give anything away, and I certainly don't want to embarrass anyone, but... Uh, somebody was talking about living in a certain place that's not really close to here and kind of jokingly said we need to move out there. Uh, No, the fact of the matter is they need to decide if this is where God wants them to be and be here instead of worrying about being out there, wherever it is. And I can't tell you over the years how many people I've heard say, you know, we're going to be moving, and it's quite a bit further, but that's all right. You know, we're, we're going to keep coming to church. We're not going to change churches. Uh, you know, sometimes I wish I'd kept a list of all of the people. Actually, I have one right up here. I could just start naming names of the different ones that said, oh, no, we're not going to change. We'll never, we'll never leave the church. We love the church, you know, but, but we're going to. And, and I've had some of them say, well, I drive that far to work. I can drive that far to church. But they never do. They never do. 
And I'm telling you, for your own sake and the welfare of your family, you need, you need to know where God wants you to be so far as what church He wants you to be in. And you need to make all of the other decisions revolve around that. Where you live, where you work, whatever. Uh, you need to make those decisions around the place that God wants you to be. And, and listen, God is not just going to change the location where he wants you to serve because you want to be somewhere else. You know, I've often said, I could preach, I could pastor an independent Baptist church up in the Ozarks. I could do that. Uh, But I couldn't do that and be in the will of God. If I was anywhere else other than where I'm at, I wouldn't be in the will of God. So whenever the Lord gave Jonah a second chance... Notice he did not change the location, nor did he change the message. He said, arise, go unto Nineveh, and then notice what he told him to do, go preach. He didn't send him there to teach the people the latest agricultural techniques or to how to doctor their bodies or how to reform their community. Now, all of those things might have been well and good. I've known, I've known missionaries who were medical doctors and they went on the mission field and they ministered to people and helped meet their physical needs. There are certain ministries that go to foreign countries and they drill wells and build buildings and do things of that nature and that's all well and good to an extent. But that must never be the sum total of what we do in ministering to other people. It's one thing, you know, to be a good neighbor and lend someone a helping hand but uh, or to help somebody reform their lives, but all you do is make them a better sinner, so to speak, because whenever they die without Christ, they're going to the same devil's hell, and nothing takes the place of preaching. So he sent him there to preach. And then notice what he says. He adds this. He says, arise, go to Nineveh and preach. He didn't say, arise, go to Nineveh and entertain those folks. He said, I want you to go there and I want you to preach. But then he said, notice, preach the preaching that I bid thee. You see, it's one thing to preach and it's another thing to preach the message that God gives you. And we never have any right to change or to omit certain parts of the message. We are to preach the entire Word of God. I am never at liberty to get up here and to bring a message where all I do is to take a text from the Bible about a particular subject and then rant and rave about my preferences in regards to different things. And it happens all of the time. You know, oh, you know, I don't like this and I don't like that and this is better than this and this is better than that. You know, God never called us to get up there and to give our opinion on everything. He tells us that we are to preach the Word, and we are to preach the Word of God as it is, without taking away from it, without adding to it. Just tell it like it is. Some way, some way, we've got it in our mind that we have to embellish the Word of God. That, that is cra- the craziest idea I ever heard. That's like trying to add red to rubies. That's like trying to add uh, sugar to honey. 
You know, it's like trying to add uh, light to the sun. You, 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 you just can't do it. You can't do any better than to stick with what the Word of God says. So he tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the preaching that I bid thee. Now, it might be on some occasions a preacher can do that, and it'll be a, it'll be a subject that, you know, everybody wants to hear about. Uh, in some instances, it'll be something where everybody is agreeable and it's easy. If the Lord said, look, I want you to bring a message about heaven, and I'm preaching to Christian people, how wonderful that would be. It is so wonderful and so easy to preach about heaven and to remind people that you're going to be reunited with your loved ones. But it's entirely different whenever the Lord says, no, I want you to preach a message of condemnation about sin and that it leads to judgment and eternal hell. That's an entirely different matter. It's so easy to preach what you think people want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And I want you to try to put yourself in Jonah's shoes and think about going where he went to these heathen, wicked people and preaching the message that God gave him. So now we see the decision being made here. But notice his departure in verse number 3, beginning there, and it says, So Jonah so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah arose, but notice, before, whenever Jonah got up, Jonah resisted God. Jonah went in the opposite direction. But now he obeys God, and he does it without any hesitation. It doesn't say two weeks later, Jonah headed for Nineveh. There was no hesitation. There was no argument. There were no questions. God said, I want you to get up, go on to Nineveh, preach the message that I give you. And he arose and went unto Nineveh. And that, again, the only place on earth where he could be in the center of God's will. Uh, I read that and I think about the, what the psalmist said, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And that was true of Jonah. It's true of you and I. Our steps are to be ordered by the Lord. That is, he is to direct us wherever we go and whatever we do. And uh, so it tells us here that he arose, he went to Nineveh as God told him to do, and we're going to see later on that, that he's still not perfect. There's still some mistakes that he makes, but we need to give him credit right now. You know, instead of thinking of his past and, and how he failed, instead of thinking about his future and the other mistakes he made, we need to give him some credit for the moment at least. He's doing exactly what God told him to do. And, and I wonder what, what Jonah must have thought whenever he enters the city. Notice it says here that it was an exceeding great city of three days journey. Three days journey, that was about 
60 miles. Now, that could speak about the length of it, you know, across. Maybe if it was oblong or if it was, could be the diameter or it could speak of the circumference of it, the distance around it. And uh, in, in studying the place, there have been a lot of debates about it and the historians, you know, looking at the archaeological evidence and so forth. Uh, you know, they've said that it you know, could not have been more than eight miles based on the archaeological information that they have. Uh, but, you know, some of that difficulty disappears when we realize that in times of peace, that a lot of times the people, uh, the city expanded as the people lived outside the city walls. So this could have a reference to the suburbs where he lived. But you know, I wonder to myself why so many people want to debate an issue like that. If it says it was an exceeding great city of three days' journey, why, why don't we just take that as it is and forget about it? It doesn't really make any difference. What really amazes me is thinking about being in a city that large with people, with people that care nothing about God whatsoever, with people that hate the Jews, and now you're going there into that city all alone. There, there is no support system, no one backing you up, no one helping you, no one there for you, and he is about to lay his life on the line. And, and, and it's dangerous enough just being there, but remember, he is there with a message from God that is not a pleasant message. And so it seems like everything is against him. Notice here in verse 4 his declaration. It says, He cried and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now notice the candor of the message and the content of the message. Concerning the candor of it, notice there is no mincing of words here. He doesn't say anything to soften the impact. He doesn't say anything that will make the message more acceptable because he's not giving an after-dinner speech. This is not a rap session. He's not there, you know, providing comedy to entertain people. He is there simply to give a message of condemnation, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the content of it. The, the number 40 is used oftentimes in the Bible as a number that deals with probation or testing. And we see that again and again. We think about Moses, of course who was up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We think about Elijah and the 40 days that he was on Mount Horeb, the 12 spies that went out to spy out the land, 40 days. We think about Jesus being taken to the devil and, you know, up into the mountain and tempted for 40 days. So it's speaking about a probation. And so you could say here that the, the, the Lord is delivering this message in 40 days a probationary period in 40 days, I'm going to destroy the city. Now, the question is, what will the people of Nineveh do? What will they do? 
We look over in that part of the world today and we think about the condition that those people are in. I'm talking about the spiritual condition. I'm talking about their beliefs today. And it is absolutely uh, mind-boggling to think that there could have ever been a time in history when those people would have had their hearts right with God. Now, I say that I say that because when we think about Jonah going there, the prospect of him being able to do anything that would ever turn them to God seems to be absolutely zero. No chance whatsoever. And he is thinking, no doubt in his mind, what good is this going to do? Or maybe he's thinking, you know, even even if they do repent, they are the enemy, our enemy, you know, of the Israelites and so forth. And you'll see later on, he even had a feeling that God was going to forgive them. And that, I, that was one of the things that really seemed to worry him more than it should. But he goes into the city like God told him to do. He makes the declaration. Now, verse number 5 here, and here we see the response to the, of, the, of the people. And uh, keep in mind that there's no big explanation given to them or anything. He just goes into the city and gives the message, brief message of condemnation. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That is, that, is, that is just amazing. They believed God. Nobody thought they would, but they did. And notice they proclaimed to fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Now, it's been estimated the population of Nineveh was one and a half to two million people at that time. And so that being the case, that makes it the biggest ingathering of souls in the history of the world. I mean... Pentecost was nothing like this. Billy Graham never had a crusade that was like this. One and a half to two million people, and it says they believed God. And it's a good thing they did. God said 40 days, and I'm going to destroy the city. And they believed that it was going to happen. Now, notice the evidence of their sincerity. And whenever you really truly believe something, there will be some evidence of it. I mentioned that this morning. Do you know that you know the Lord? And is there any evidence that you really know the Lord? Just saying, I know the Lord is not enough. If there is no evidence... If there's no evidence, then you're not going to have any peace and other people are not going to have any confidence. So if we really believe something, if someone, our ushers come running in here screaming to the top of their lungs, the building is on fire, get out of here right now. If we really believe them, what are we going to do? We're going to vacate the premises. We're going to, we're going to get out of Dodge. We're going to leave the building. Why? We, we believe it's on fire. Whether it is or not, we believe it and we act on what we believe. And that, that's always true. What we truly believe will dictate the manner in which we behave. So they believed God and the evidence is what? They proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth. Notice, from the greatest to the least. 
And here is an expression of concern, a demonstration of humility on their part. And to me, this is the most amazing part of this story here. Yeah, I think it's a whole lot easier for me to believe that that Jonah was swallowed by the by the whale than that the Ninevites would repent. This is the most difficult part of the story to to really believe. Of course, I don't have any trouble believing that God's word says it happened, and so that's no trouble. But it's more amazing to me. Uh, that a people like this would believe God, that is a miracle that is beyond description. But listen, it goes to show what God can do when His servants do what they should. I, I, really, I really doubt if any of us, and I'm including me, I really doubt if any of us have any idea of what great things God could do right here on this piece of property, right here with this church. I mean, if we absolutely, totally, without any reservation, devoted ourselves to Him, if we obeyed Him in every single way that was possible, uh, I, I think God could do great things that we never even imagined. I've heard people talk about the fact, you know, we live in a day and an age to where, you know, especially if you're an independent Baptist, that is, you know, you're not sponsored, uh, your missionaries are not sponsored by a mission board, and you're not involved, you know, with all of these man-made organizations. And if you really stand for the King James Version of the Bible like we do, and that's all we use, and uh, why, why you can't expect people to join the church like that. You know, my answer is, why not? Why not? Amen. I mean, listen, I realize that we're living in a day where there's a great departure from the faith, but but we put limits in our mind. We put limits on what we think that God can do. We need to get rid of those. We need to stop thinking about, you know, all of the difficulties we face and we need to start thinking about what God wants to do and just obey him regardless of how foolish it seems I mean this has got to seem like to some people those that that knew Jonah they, they must have thought he has lost his mind why would you why would you leave the comfort of your home why would you leave the fellowship of your people why would you for any reason go to Nineveh those people hate us. Why would you do that? And yet, eventually, he gets a second chance. He goes to Nineveh, and now he's there delivering the message. Notice the reaction of the king, because all of the people, notice they are fasting and in sackcloth. But here in verse number 6, it speaks about the king. It says, For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell? 
If God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. Now here's an example of the leader following the people. So many times, you know, we think about everything depends on the leader. So many times we think, you know, if we don't get a particular party out of the White House, if we don't win the election, if we don't get a champion, if we don't get a leader up there that, you know, that will do what is right, we don't stand a chance. You know where the real problem is? The real problem's not with the person in the White House. The real problem's with the people that put him there. The real problem is with the general population. And politicians just have a way, you know, they have a way of, of coming to the level of popular opinion. Have you ever noticed that? They're experts at that. And listen, whenever whenever the population gets to the point that they're going to do right instead of wrong, you'll see that all of a sudden we have leaders that want to lead us in that direction. And that's why I've said so many times, whatever we've got up there, we get what we deserve. We get what we deserve as a nation because we are the ones responsible for putting the person there. But here is a man who is in authority. Here is a man who is rich. Here is a man who is famous. You know, these are the most difficult people to reach. So many times we think about reaching people in rescue missions, those that are down and out. We think about reaching those that are on alcohol and drugs. And and, and, and certainly we need to reach people like that. Uh, but so many times, you know, we, we, we overlook those that are living, you know, in the mansions. We overlook those doctors and lawyers and those that are real high up in the social ladder. And, and, and admittedly, it's very difficult in dealing with people like that because so many times it's difficult in getting them to see their spiritual need. You know, it's hard to get somebody to see their need of God whenever their belly is full and they're driving a nice car and living in a nice home and they have every earthly comfort that you can imagine and it's hard to get them to understand, I need God. But they do need God and the fact of the matter is we need to be as concerned about going to people like that as we are going to those that are down and out. And so the king, the king watching what the people did, He has his eyes on the people. They're fasting. They're in sackcloth. He does the same, but he takes it a step further. And now notice what he does. He makes a decree. Here he's making a proclamation to all of the people that they do this. He is enacting laws, in other words. Somebody has said you can't legislate morality. And there is a sense in which that is true. There's another sense in which that is the only thing you actually can legislate. And so, you know, you can look at it one or two ways, but the fact of the matter is we can, and we have in years gone by, made laws based on the principles of God's Word. Our nation was founded on that very fact. You know, everybody that, everybody at the, back at the beginning when the founding of the nation, it wasn't because everybody was Christians, because they weren't Christians. The majority of the people 
uh, we're not what we would call born-again, dedicated, God-loving, devil-hating Christians. But the real, true believers had enough influence that they carried the day, as it were, because they were the conscience of society. I said this morning the problem today is that, you know, the church is no longer able to impact the society in which we live. But there's a reason for that, and the main reason is because we're not making any effort to do so. And we need to understand that as the salt and the light of this world that we have an obligation toward other people. And so here we see the king enacting these laws that relate to Jehovah God. And notice what happens, verse number 10. Here we see the repentance of Nineveh. Verse number 10. And God saw their works. He always does. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them. And He did it not. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but that is a shocking statement, concept to a lot of people. In fact, they claim that this verse contradicts other verses in the Bible. For example, in Numbers 23 and verse 19, it says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. So, there have been those so-called Bible scholars that came along and said, See here, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. God, God can't repent. God doesn't repent. And yet here it says that He does. What we need to remember is this, that although God's character never changes, God does change the way in which He deals with us. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll never be any different than what He is, but He deals with us in different ways. And whenever it talks about God repenting here, keep in mind that God has to accommodate our ignorance. God has to communicate to us through the Bible here on a level that we can understand. And so He is using language to describe something that is beyond description. Are you with me? He's using language to describe something beyond description. How that the Bible says that God does not repent, that He never changes His mind, so to speak, and then it turns around and says God changed His mind. Well, let's go back to the fact that He said, remember, 40 days, 40 days, that probationary period, I think, and convinced in my heart that it was as though God is saying and leaving there a space of time wherein they could repent. And, and, and in giving this period, you know, God could have said, just go there and tell them that in 30 seconds, I'm going to blow it all to hell. In 30 seconds, it's all over. But he didn't do that, did he? God was giving them an opportunity. And our attitude and our 
Our actions determines what God is going to do. When we think about America, I've heard people say, you know, if God doesn't apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, if he doesn't destroy America pretty soon, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he doesn't. He doesn't need to ever apologize to anyone for anything because he's never done anything wrong. God was perfectly just in what he did. And by the way, when we think about what's going on in America today is how horrible it is that every year a million little innocent unborn babies being murdered and our government putting its stamp of approval on that and how that God could let that go. I mean, that's the way we're looking at it. That God doesn't do anything about it. Well, payday comes someday. Payday comes someday. God's not willing that any should perish. We better be glad that God is long-suffering. Now, I don't know. I don't know how long we've got. But there is a time limit. There's that hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. And the decision that we make concerning what the Word of God has said is going to determine what happens. I want to close by turning over to Jeremiah chapter number 18 and affirming what I just said. Our choice, our decision determines what God is going to do in America and in your life and in my life. Jeremiah 18 beginning in verse 7. And he says, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning the nation to build and to plan it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And then he said to Jeremiah, Now therefore go and speak to the men of Judah. Verse 12, notice, he goes and he says, Return ye now, every one of you, from your evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, There's no hope. There's no hope. But we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Wow. What, what grace that God would even give them an opportunity. That God would send the prophet with the message of hope. And their response is, there's not any hope. We're just going to do whatever we imagine in our heart. I, I don't know yet what America is going to do. 
but I know what each one of us need to do while we have an opportunity. We need to take advantage of those what we call chances or opportunities that God gives us, whether it's the first chance, the second chance, or the third, or whatever it is. We need to amend our ways and do the will of God regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences. Because if we don't, if we don't, there's nothing but misery and destruction. And if we do, if we do, God has promised to bless. And that's exactly what he's saying here through Jeremiah. And uh, the people of Nineveh made the right choice. And we need to consider what choice we're going to make tonight. You can't decide for all of America. I don't care how hard you try. You cannot just grit your teeth and force America to go in the right direction. But every one of us can make a decision concerning the direction that we take, and it'll make a difference. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank you not only for the direction that you provide through your word, but the warnings that you give. And then, Lord, we're so thankful for the examples that's been set forth, examples of those that refused to repent and the examples of those who did. And, Lord, I just pray tonight that it might encourage and inspire us to know that that not only is it the right thing to do, but it's the best thing that we could possibly do, and that is to follow your will for our life. And I pray that you'll help us, help our nation to reach that place of desperation that as the Ninevites fasted, as they prayed, as they humbled themselves in sackcloth, God, may we so believe and so trust that it will be evident to those that are around us that we're serious about our relationship with you, that we might see our people turn back to your ways. For we pray in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.